But if you're visiting with us today, we're turning uh, back to the book of 1 Peter, where we have been walking through God's word, and we come to chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and this is where Peter the apostle addresses God, government, and the gospel. And if ever there was a Sunday, I think, where maybe our philosophy of handling the word of God is, is on display, this, I hope, is it, where we want and ask for God's word to to declare to us the gospel of Jesus fully, clearly. At the same time, we will preach that which is in the text where he has it in, its te- in his text for us. And so I've never preached through the book of Romans. Chapter 13 is about government. I've never preached through the book of 1 Peter. So these are the, the two of the most explicit places in the Bible that go straight to government and give us as the church a, a mind about it. And so this is the first time I've been so bold to preach politics, if you will. And we're going to do that because that's the way we handle God's word here. So I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me and let's hear God's word read, verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2. Peter writes, led by God's Holy Spirit, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us in this time to humbly submit to that which is in your word for us today? And I pray for special help. It's a sensitive topic. We ask that we would see Jesus today through it and you'd mature us in Christ where you've placed us here and now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Let me ask you four questions before we start. Will we receive God's word on this matter? It's question one. Two, will our contemporary context, the left, the right, the polarity of our cultural ideologies, the character of our leaders, will all those things be considered as the text applies this word to our lives, but will our feelings and our passions come under the authority of God's word? Question three, will I this morning preach with the very freedom that's at the center of this text? I don't preach politics. I never have. I, I never will as far as it being a political pulpit. It's not. But today this text is about government and God's government And we all come in with different ears to hear. And what I mean by that is this. The word of God is unchanging, but those who hear it have different levels of wisdom and foolishness. And I'm not judging you in this room, but there are different levels of wisdom and foolishness in this room as relates to this issue. There are different levels of engagement represented in this room. There are different levels and, I mean, excuse me, different sources of information influencing people in this room. There are different life experiences and family of origin views and regions of the country where many of us have grown up. There are different social constructs that you may find yourself in 
with regularity. For example, we are in the PCA, a conservative Bible-believing denomination. When eight years ago I ended up doing uh, some work outside in the nonprofit sector, you know what I wasn't prepared to do? Suddenly have 95% of my life be with people in the social sector that had political views that were much further left than where I grew up. Then when I spent 10 years as an NCAA soccer official and I would ride in the cars with these, these gentlemen, usually it, were, it was men that I was with, some of them owned businesses. It was the first time in my life that I was around what I'll call fiscal conservatives, that they were crude, they were crass, they were very different conservatives than the Republican people that I grew up with in the church. Let me just say it that way. All over the place, you have your construct in which you work, in which you live, in which you play. Will we allow God's word to give us an interpretive lens in the midst of all those differences? Fourth question, will we allow this text to point us to the single place of the gospel of Jesus Christ and nowhere else? And that's what we're going to do this morning. So let me pray again in light of those four things, okay? I'll pray a few times throughout our sermon this morning. Father, I just want to ask your help that we would come under this text, that we would hear your word on this matter, that we would allow it to be applied in the different context we each come from, and that you would show us Jesus and his gospel even through this text. That and nothing less than that we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you. I will pray a few times throughout our service this morning. So let's understand Peter's context before we jump into his words. His context, where is Peter writing this letter? Rome. Who is the emperor in this time? It's probably Nero. Some say it may be Claudius right before Nero. It may be before the systemic persecution of Christians that Nero would do, but that's his historical context. Nero was neurotic and ruthless. That's his historical context. But what about Peter's personal context? We looked at it in a, a first message. We used some words from 2 Peter where Peter says, I know my putting off of my body is going to come soon. So what's Peter's personal context? He is facing imminent death. We can't let that go when we have this conversation this morning. I want you to think with me how everything as far as priority changes when one is facing an imminent death. Now, there's a lot I can try to assume I know about that, but I don't fully know it. But let me tell you something going on in my personal life. Um, when I was in middle school, I, I grew up in Colorado until I was 14. I had a friend named John who suffered cystic fibrosis as he was young. And he couldn't compete and do all the same athletics as the rest of us. But he was a special kid, and I still remember John very, very clearly. John, over the course of his adult life, had two lung transplants. About two months ago, he put out on social media that his body is rejecting both lungs. And he's at peace. And he and his family and his wife, and I think he's got a seven-year-old son, that he is now in hospice care. And his lung capacity and his exhaustion level and his cognitive abilities are just decreasing, but he's not in pain. Corey and I will probably go back soon to Colorado for that funeral. Um, you know what I haven't seen him post about? anything related to politics. And the Colorado that I grew up in has a lot of opinions about politics. Not a single thing. Is it unimportant all of a sudden? No, it's not unimportant. Please hear me say that. But when one is facing imminent death, what does that do with regards to the way one views culture, with regards to one views issues? So here's what's amazing to me. Peter is facing death, 
We cannot miss that. He's an apostle that is given a calling and a role to prepare God's people to meet the King of kings and Lord of lords. He knew that king. He saw him in all his glory. Peter is also going to do that calling from under a regime, that a governmental regime that is prideful, immoral, in, unjust. It's, it's oppressive. It's the same government that crucified Jesus. And on the one hand, Peter could be a zealot then and say, well, I'm going to die anyway. Or on the other hand, Peter could be apathetic and not care at all because I'm about to die anyway. He doesn't do either. Peter chooses to speak to us in a letter he wrote to the Church Universal, and he has a section, very choice words, about politics and government underneath his knowing who the King of Kings is, and so we should really heed his chosen reason for including these words here. We should listen. This should hold more sway than any contemporary voice on the matter. Let me say that again, and I hope you believe it. This should hold more sway than any contemporary voice on the matter. I want to go through a series of questions, hopefully to make this very clear this morning. That's my prayer. First question is this. Whose government are we talking about? Whose government is Peter talking about? Let me just show you. Every single verse says something about God's government. We're not talking about Nero's government. Peter's talking about God's government. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 14, there's a purpose of rulers. Who's the one that established that purpose? God did. So it's kind of implied in verse 14. Verse 15, it's the will of God that you do good as a servant. Verse 16, function as servants of God. Verse 17, fear God. Every single verse in this section, Peter is implying or stating it very succinctly, there's only one king in Peter's eyes. It's God, the universal, sovereign, creator, redeemer, monarch. It's God. So to Peter, this text is not about neurotic Nero. It's not about the Roman governor Pilate. So that means to us, if we're a Christian, and I'll just say this, it had better not be about Trump and his administration. This text is not about the 2020 elections and divergent political ideologies that could cause us to panic. This text, if you're a Chinese Christian, is not about Jinping and his communist regime. To a Russian Christian, this text had not be about Putin. To an Indian Christian, this text had not be about Prime Minister Modi. To a British Christian, this text had not be about the Queen or the Parliament or Boris Johnson or Brexit. This text applies to all those things but it is not about those supreme governors, elected officials, monarchs. To Peter and to us, this text is about God's government, period, end of sentence. This text sits on top of every geopolitical era, every political structure, every ideological camp, every emperor leader across the face of the earth, across all time. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to believe that you're the King of kings and Lord of lords?
And there is no system of government that's outside of your care. And that we would not think about anything we face apart from your supreme identity as the King of kings and Lord of lords being in the center of how we think. We ask for help in that as Peter would, would give us words to think through this morning. It's about your government, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next question, what citizenship are we talking about? Verse 1 of chapter 1. We are sojourners and exiles. This is not your home. A few weeks ago, we looked at a text saying, you're a chosen race, a holy nation. He's saying holy nation to Gentiles and Jews alike, from Rome or from Israel, whichever the case may be. This is not your home. We're a transient people, a pilgrim people, pedestrians in exile in a host country under every human institution, wherever that place may be. So, Peter addresses this to us and understand he is not talking to us as citizens in the place that prints our passport. He's not talking to us as citizens in a place where before October of 2020, you have to get a new license with all this documentation to get a little star on it. He's not talking about that citizenship, but you probably should do that if you live here, if you want to fly anywhere. No, our citizenship is in a heavenly kingdom you're a part of a holy nation with one king. Paul said the same thing, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians 2 verse 19, so then you're no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints across all time. Hebrews 12, we, we don't come to something that can be touched, but to a kingdom that could never be shaken. I want you to think about this citizenship thing. Anybody aware of the very first sentences of the naturalization oath that happens if someone becomes a citizen of the United States of America? Let me read to you the, the first sentences in the oath that is stated for a person that's going to become a citizen of this country. And listen for something clearly. I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign place, prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have hereto been a subject or a citizen before this time. So you can't become a citizen of this country without renouncing your citizenship wherever you also once were a citizen. That's just the very first statement. Folks, let's think about that as what Peter's writing to us about being Christians. We don't have dual citizenship in the eyes of the scripture. We're a resident alien here in whatever host country God places us. We have citizenship in heaven through Jesus, the righteous one, as we await for his kingdom to come to earth as it is in heaven. So if there's any citizenship this text is about, it's about our heavenly citizenship. And then we apply it. God's word to our life here as resident aliens, as sojourners, as exiles. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to be active in the community like we should and then not think of this as the place we're supposed to care most, as the system of government we're actually under or as the place in which our citizenship actually is. Would you help us to understand what it means to be visiting foreigners, that our citizenship is in heaven and it cannot be shaken we ask for your help in this. Give us that identity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So next question, what is this actually about? If we were very simple about it this morning. It is about submissive freedom. 
That's what this text is about. Let me say it this way. Submissive freedom under God's authority, under the human institutions wherein we sojourn. That's what this text is about, submissive freedom. Because the fact that we don't have uh, dual citizenship, but we have alternative citizenship in heaven, it doesn't wreck our civic duty here, right? Quite the contrary, Peter is going to tell us here that we make great residence wherever God places Christians. We make great residence in how we serve and we honor the people around us, but we do so as people who are subject to the authorities in that place, and we do so with a freedom that God has given to us. One commentator helped me with this, uh, said this, it may be tempting for Christians, especially in pagan societies, to construe that the loyalty they have to Christ is licensed for rebellion against the ungodly authorities that are given to them. No, not at all. Submissive freedom. Be subject for the Lord's sake wherever he's placed you. This is the the Lord's will for you. Verse 15, you are doing good if you do this. Do you see that? You are doing good if you do this. So what does doing good mean? Well, doing good has to be more than simply obeying the laws of the land. Understand with me. Because if you just obey the laws of the land, there's nothing to distinguish you. Peter is saying something greater than just obeying the laws of the land. It sounds like Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the welfare of the place I put you. But this is big. By God's design and command, we are subjected to another's authority in the place where we're put, regardless their moral compass or their foundational philosophies. That's what Peter's saying. Verse 16, but we don't do it as people who are enslaved. We do it living as people who are free, as servants of God, the King of Kings. That's what Peter says. So submissive freedom. It's super paradoxical, and I respect that. But let me try to help you make it beautiful, because I think this is gorgeous. Do you, do you know there in your English it says, submit to, you're subject to every human institution. That word in the Greek is not institution. It's a word that doesn't show up very many places at all in the Bible. It's actually the word creature. Or it, it's, it's maybe it has been called the word order to any human creature or any human order. Here's what I found helpful this week. One commentator said, Peter's not talking about submission to institutions, but to people who have roles that God has established. Let's go further than that. Think of C.S. Lewis. He said this about people. He said, if we could see a lowly Christian as they will be redeemed in all their glory, our temptation would be to fall down and worship that beautiful creature, to honor beautiful image-bearing creatures. And I think that's referenced here where God put people in roles. We will not always respect their positions or their way of thinking, but do you value the honor and the beauty that is due to people Because God made people. Submissive freedom. It's the submission of respect and honor. And folks, I want to acknowledge this is is super hard. We got rid of our cable last week. It's like a special day in our home. Um, And the last thing we did is try to watch some of the movies that we'd had recorded before we got rid of our recordings. So we watched Karate Man 2 as our last family exercise. Mr. Miyagi says this, never let your passion trump principle to Daniel's son. 
Never let your passion trump principle. What's the principle that Peter is telling to us right here? You are subject to the leader that God has put you under, and you are to be subject honorably under God's authority freely. That's the principle. Now, what passions does that well up inside of you and inside of me? Lots. In here, in the heart out of which all of our actions flow, I want to ask you the passions you have. Do you know the passion to have an attitude of panic or fear? If you are concerned or in doubt of the moral character or the philosophical systems that are at place in the, in the land where God has put you. Do you know the passions inside of fear? I'm sure you do. Do you know also the alternative of the passion of pride? And maybe your announcements get a little louder when you actually are happy with who is in place over you. And you believe from the scriptures that it's better. If you have a candidate or a platform and you cannot stand and you believe it's unbiblical in its view of life or murder or stewardship or whatever, do you end up having passions well up inside where you speak fierce, dishonorable words? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Or if it's a, cat, a candidate with a platform you affirm, you say that's a biblical view of life. It's a bi biblical view of holiness more so than the alternative. And so I get louder and my friends around me see a different side of me as though we're winning and they're losing. I understand the passions and the attitudes, but verse 17 is clear. You honor the emperor. You fear the God who put that person in place. What about our actions? This is helpful to me. One commentator writes, it's God's will that Christians do good, even in pagan societies. They silence the slander about Christianity, and all the more, as they are publicly recognized by the authorities for their good works that benefit their city. You ever seen that happen when a Christian or Christians come together and they do something that's so good for the general populace that they're celebrating their praise? It's beautiful. And if they do so with the, the humility that it should have attached to it, with the honor of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it's not even about them. It's just good. It's beautiful. Do you have a desire for that even? I read this quote. Christians were often charged with subversion of the established order. They were accused of spreading disloyalty against the government. Of because Jesus was their king, of disrupting trade. And Peter here says, silence the slander of foolish people by your good civic conscience and compassion. Do you know, do you have in yourself a desire to do good in this city that God's placed you? I was in Charleston, West Virginia on Thursday uh, with the home repair stuff I do. I'm sitting with a man who retired from the police department 20 years Big fella. I was in the safest coffee shop in Charleston, West Virginia. He's a retired police officer, but now he runs a ministry of reentry for prisoners coming out of prison. And they're going to build a house with our organization in the part of town that developers no longer go to. So we're going to build a house with, with ex-cons. And you know who's at the center of it? The guy who retired from the police department at age 45 and had nothing else to do. And when I found out just this week that the government went to him and offered him a job because he volunteered to do it for 18 months. He just started a ministry because he was living off his retirement. The government came to him and said, we have so much more money for housing. Can we use your reentry program? His name's Errol. 
and I felt tiny sitting next to this massive man. But I was so blessed just to see a citizen ask if he could pray over dinner and pray the way he prayed. Then I learned about what he was doing in his town. Folks, by our actions, the words we use when we speak about those in authority, our graciousness to try to do things for our community, sometimes we have to and get to work alongside those who are in authority. But folks, by our doing good, do we make the impact that we're called to make where we've been placed? By our attitude, do we speak in such a way that if we, we were at polar opposite ends of somebody that's in office or about to be in office or thinks they should be in office, we still stun the people around us because we can disagree with such honor and respect that they know you are more concerned with the fact that the throne has not changed positions at all because you submit to a government that's above all nations in your mind and heart, and I sense it. Now, there is commentary given here about the role of government. I just want you to see that. Verse 14. Rulers are put in place by God to do two things. Punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Do you see that? That's in verse 14. I think it is important to understand that government, according to God's word, is not set in place to be an agency of grace and mercy. That's the role of the church. Now, because we should have honor for other human beings, it's a necessary evil that governments should be willing to care for their subjects. But as a systematic thing, that's not the description the scriptures give to government. Government is there to protect, and it's there to righteously praise those who do good. The church, it's our calling to be those who are agents of change and impact and mercy and grace. But here's the challenge of the whole text. Not every ruler will do the way we want them to do those two things in verse 14, do they? Whether they're doing or not doing their ordained call before God does not change their position over us if he's placed us under their leadership. We submit to God's sovereignty. Acts 17, Paul says that God has established every nation. He's allotted their determined periods of time and the boundaries of their dwelling. Every nation. Jesus said, you're living in a place where the face on the coins is not my face. It's Caesar's. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Folks, I, I hope that you sense me the single point here of living with freedom as servants of God subject to where we are. Now, what might that look like? Let me just throw some things out. As servants of God, we are free to endure. You have to believe that. We're free to endure unjust leadership. And I'll get more to some things in a bit before we close. We're free to be prayerful, supportive visitors, just like is written in Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Seek the welfare where you are. Pray for those that are there. You're free to be a prayer, for a, a, a vehement prayer for people in positions of influence and leadership, whether you agree with them or not. We are free to be engaged as servants, not as zealots. Let me try to explain that. And I don't want to say that term for shock value. Some of us, and I'm kind of going through this myself just to show you my angst. Some of us need to step up and care more and be more informed. Some of us need to realize that we all have a calling to be a resident civilian here. But some of us will have a higher calling or a special calling to be a public servant or leader, to get involved, 
to vote with righteous conscience, to ask and seek God's word, but to be in positions of influence. Not all will be called to that. Some will be called to that. Some of us need to tone it down and watch our tone. And remember, we're just sojourners here. I just want you to understand that in the first century, zealots fought as guerrillas and, and terrorists against Rome. Zealots were a part of bringing down the fall of Jerusalem, of the temples in AD 70, years later. Jesus taught, and his teaching cut right across the revolutionary political expectations, and who was very disappointed in Jesus? The zealots were. In fact, he says in Luke 7, blessed is the one who's not offended by me that I didn't come to set up the kingdom, a political one that you thought I would come to set up. He made Peter put away his sword in the garden. Peter, that's not how my kingdom comes in. I mean, this is just such a tricky thing. I share that with you. It's, it's words that have always been needed I want you to think with me about the fact that there have been eras in the church where some have directly challenged Peter's words and Jesus' words. And I'm not the historian I wish I could be, and I'll say some broad things, and you may come to me later and tell me I could have been more clear. Folks, it is known in history books that the church had kings on earth do its bidding during the time of crusades and took the sword in Jesus' name. And there's other reasons I understand that. Maybe they're over my head. But they claimed to be servants of the king and took the sword and slaughtered many. The only slaughtering that would come in this way was Jesus on his own cross when he suffered the cost of his own death at the hand of the leader of his unrighteous space and time there in the Roman Empire. There, there's, a, there's a hard part of this that I want to point out to you. Verse 16, maybe something we don't want to hear. Peter wants us to know that we can tend to use our freedom to do evil. You have to see that, Christian. He says it blatantly in verse 16. What would it look like for us to use our freedom as a cover-up for evil? Because we're told not to. I've been wrestling with this all week. I, I mean, I don't know. I think in one way, it's just in the attitude we have, the disdain we have toward those who disagree with us, who may be in authority or who could be, the way that we speak. I use my freedom and I, I sit under God's righteous way and it allows me all the disrespect and dishonor that I feel to be expressed freely. Or because I am under God's authority and leadership, then I actually would like to set up something where it's not for the good of all. I don't want to protect all in this civilian space in which we fill. I want special privileges. I don't know fully, but I know that maybe what he's referencing in 16, it's the opposite of what he says in verse 17. How about that? Just to let the text help us. It's the opposite of honoring everyone. We use our freedom to not honor everyone because we say we're free. To, you know, we love the brotherhood maybe more than others. Fear God, honor the emperor. Maybe what he's saying is we use our freedom as a cover-up to do the opposite of the way verse 17 describes us that we're supposed to be. This quote helped me this week. The purpose of citizenship and political leadership is the good of the whole people with special concern for the poor and for the weak. It is not power. It is not profit. It is not the benefit to a special sect or class or believing group of people.
I told myself I wouldn't overpreach. Let's pray. I'm not done yet, but we'll pray. Father, I just ask you to make us people who are free under your authority and we submit and we're subject to those under which you put us, but that we serve as servants, not as zealots. And, and, and you show us what that means with the wisdom you've given to us in your word as well as in community with others. I ask for your help in Christ's name. Last thing, what about X? Just give me five more minutes. I want to ask you maybe four things. What, what about injustice, right? I mean, what do we do if there's injustice coming from our rulers and they don't do what verse 14 says? What do we do? Well, listen, folks, we should speak out according to God's word. We should decry oppression. We should pursue sufferers. We should be compassionate and kind. But we have to be clear. The text doesn't assume injustice. It says it's going to happen. So we're not twisting the text, saying, well, what do I do if I'm in a real unjust situation? No, he's in the most unjust situation. It took Jesus' life. So that's not a question mark to us. The words don't suddenly mean something else if we really go through injustice. He's going through more injustice than we have known. Okay, next thing. No doubt there will arise regimes who are so oppressive and so godless and so unjust that they can no longer be said to fulfill verse 14. Then what about civil disobedience? Listen, um, Jesus did not allow his disciples the freedom for uprising. That's true. But Paul in Acts chapter 4, what did he do? He spoke out to the authorities and said, we're going to obey God, not you, if you give commands opposite of what the Lord teaches us to do. So whether you're in a place like China or maybe someday it's going to be here, if we are told we cannot worship, folks, we will worship and we will gather and we must, but what are we willing to risk? The cost of our civil disobedience. We don't need special favor. What happened to Bonhoeffer? He paid the price for his civil disobedience. What happened to Paul? What happened to Peter? They paid the price for their civil disobedience. What happened to Jesus? He paid the price for his civil disobedience. And sometimes in God's providence, it's his determination. Forces will rise up. People will speak out. They will push back. And he will change the regime. But we don't have authority for that. And so if we're going to speak out and we're going to seek to be righteous in what we do and we're going to seek to love the oppressed but also still not do that which is contrary to what God's word teaches us, we don't get special treatment. Expect your civil disobedience to bring the consequence of the law of the land where God has placed you. Okay. I was going to say something about what about America, but that's not worth the time. America is not the church. That's my point. It's one of the many nations who've been given the same description as verse 14 of what our role is. And our role is verse 14. The church is the new Israel, not America. What about evangelism and discipleship? Folks, please hear this. We're called to go to every nation to the ends of the earth and declare who the King of kings and Lord of lords is. But when you do evangelism here in this land and you share with someone who doesn't hold the same view that God is the authoritative monarch of all time, where do you think they're going to start out? With too conservative of a position of righteousness and holiness? No, they're going to start somewhere else completely. If you are not capable of humbly and graciously walking a person from their political views unto your view that there's only one King of kings and Lord of lords, then your political views have, have maybe postured you into the antithesis of the Great Commission. I know I'm saying that strongly. 
we planted a church in Pennsylvania in a much less conservative place than here in an election year. It was horrible. Horrible time to plant a church. But I used to say to folks, if your neighbors know more about your political stance by your Facebook posts or the sign in the yard than that you bow the knee to Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you rip your heart open and beg him for mercy, you may need to go meet your neighbors and share with them the real you. Would you please be an evangelist and a discipler of others in this political landscape? And if you are mostly agitated, those who need to meet Jesus through you probably won't trust you to have a conversation about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Off my notes, but that's how I feel. Finally, what about the gospel? Folks, Jesus incarnated all these verses. He was a sojourner with an identity of righteousness, the only one who was truly righteous. He spoke out and called out the evil of his day. He said, I'm a king. And he paid the price for it where his father had placed him underneath the rulers in Rome, and he did so for our rescue. He did not try to rescue himself in the moment. He entrusted himself to God. And then he discipled his disciples and had to live inside of an environment where no surprise at all, it wasn't going to get better, it was going to get worse. He spoke out, he never caved, but he submitted. And here's my thought about Jesus, and this is where we'll stop. For Jesus, it appears to me the question was not, how far do I go until I push against the, against the present powers? His, his mindset rather was, how far will I submit to my father's authority and my father's eternal government and suffer for his purpose? as his beloved. And he did that for our rescue. He suffered death and then he conquered death and it was all at the hands of a temporary nation that was not righteous. And he will return the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I feel like I muddied all this. I'm just going to say it. One of the reasons I left typical church ministry in the first place was because I realized a lot of the people I love spending time with would never walk into one of the churches I pastor. And so in 2012, I said, I can't do this anymore. I love preaching the gospel. I love conservative theology. But I want to see the people that would never sit in these chairs meet Jesus. And so I left the church and I was burnt out and I was tired. And I ended up in the social sector of all places. And I still feel the same way. The people I want to hear be sitting in here right now, they know I'm preaching on this. I spent the week talking with friends outside the church about this text. And I invited them all to come and they're not here. And I don't think we need to soften our view of Scripture. And our theology and what Trey said earlier. But if we don't know how to stand in the, as citizens where we are, they won't ever want to talk to us about Jesus. I'm sorry. Let's pray. 
Father, would you bless us now as we trust in the King of Kings to come back and bring the political revolution. When he comes, it's not going to happen until you come back, Jesus. But I pray that we would be beautiful in how we engage. But we do so with honor and respect. But we do so as informed servants, as sojourners. Well, I just ask, I thank you for every person in this room. I know some of which are engaged very deeply in politics, and I'm thankful for that. I just ask for your help. Would we be your church in this place, in this election year? And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.